You're now listening to a podcast of Revolution Church, located at 1702 6th Street in Portsmouth, Ohio. Revolution meets on Sunday evenings at 6 p.m. For more information, visit www.revolutionchurchohio.com or check out our Facebook page. All right. Good evening, church. Uh, for those of you who may not know me in here, uh, my name is David Allison. I am a, um, an elder candidate here at Revolution Church. And uh, I'm grateful to be up here uh, for another opportunity to be in the pulpit. Um, it's actually been a while since the last time I was up here, so uh, you know, I'm grateful for this opportunity. And uh, all week I've been praying for you guys um, that what we're going to talk about tonight would be edifying, uh, would be enlightening for us. So as many of you know, we've been going through a sermon series on the Protestant Reformation, the five solas. And by the grace of God, we've had many uh, faithful preachers that have come to us, preachers way better than I am. Uh, Gary Chaffins preached to us a couple weeks ago on the doctrine of sola scriptura and the sufficiency of God's word. Robbie Day preached to us on the doctrine of sola gratia and the fact that we are saved by grace alone. And uh, last week, Steve actually came and preached to us. He told us about the doctrine of sola fide, the fact that we are justified by faith alone. And so this week, I'm tackling another sola, and my task is to preach to the doctrine of solus Christus. And uh, I was actually kind of worried when uh, Steve preached last week. I thought he'd step on my toes a little bit with um, some of the material, but uh, because these doctrines are very close, but he ended up just making fun of me and uh, telling, giving everyone a visual of me trying to dunk on a 10-foot rim, so that's pretty cool. <laughs> Thanks, Steve. Uh, he actually asked me uh, before he did that if it was okay, and I gave him the okay, so I wasn't really mad, but it's still funny. All right, uh, moving forward. Um, R.C. Sproul said that the doctrine of sola fide was shorthand for the doctrine of solus Christus. And while Steve gave you a short, a short version of that last week, uh, we're kind of going to dig a little bit deeper. We're going to take the long route. So to start things off, um, before we get into this, I think it would be beneficial if we go and we have an overview of the Protestant Reformation. Uh, this kind of sets our context a little bit, and this will allow us to understand the history of, of this sola and why it exists. 501 years ago, an Augustinian monk changed the world forever. And on October 31st, 1517, a man by the name of Martin Luther dared to call his fellow academics to consider matters that he found troubling within the Roman Catholic Church. With a hammer in his hand, Luther nailed his famous 95 theses to the church doors in Wittenberg, Germany. And it was out of this act that the Protestant Reformation was born. Out of that Protestant Reformation came the five solas, and these are five central beliefs that the Reformers held to uh, on the topic of soteriology, which is the study of salvation, or the, that part of theology that explains to us how one is saved. Each one of these solas is in direct opposition to the Roman Catholic teaching on salvation. And so these five solas represent the recovery of the gospel in a time when it was just left in darkness. This is why, as Protestants, we celebrate the five solas, uh, even to this day, over 501 years later. One of the central cries of the Protestant Reformation was that the just shall live by faith. And this was taken from Romans 1.17. Behind that cry is the affirmation that the righteousness by which we are declared just is not of our own. Solus Christus goes on, and it answers the great question of the 16th century. And that question was, by what grounds will a holy God declare sinful man righteous in his sight? 
And it is this exact question that we will be addressing tonight. Now, the Roman Catholic Church has their own answer to this question. And they developed a formula that they thought would believe um, that they brought forth to, uh, I'm losing my wording. They created this um, formula for us to understand justification. This is their understanding of how we have justification. So these are the things that, Ro that Rome affirms. They affirm faith, they affirm Christ, and they affirm grace. But they see these as pieces of a puzzle that by themselves are not um, sufficient enough to give us justification. So if you can visualize this with me, um, this is the Roman Catholic formula. They give you faith plus works, they give you grace plus merit, and Christ's righteousness plus our inherent righteousness equals justification. They put all these together and this is their formula. This uh, is the formula that the reformers adamantly objected to. And if you see that the reformers actually um, erased the addition of works, merit, and our inherent righteousness, leaving us only with faith alone, grace alone, and Christ alone. The doctrine of solus Christus is built upon the foundation, uh, it is, the, is the foundation for all of the other solas. And if we lose this precious doctrine, everything else goes with it. Um, in this doctrine, we understand that it is the work of Christ alone that brings reconciliation, righteousness, and justification. But we always have to ask, were the reformers just splitting hairs? We have to look at these things. Were they just theological concepts that they forced onto everyone because they wanted to protest Rome? Or were these biblical concepts? Or even for tonight, a better question that we can ask was, is solus Christus a biblical doctrine? And that's what we're going to find out. So if you have your Bibles, go ahead and turn with me to the book of Romans, chapter 5. And in this chapter, uh, it's jam-packed with theological truths, uh, statements, and phrases. It's actually 21 verses long, and I know that may seem long to a lot of us, but I remember David cracking through like three chapters at a, at a time in his sermon series to the Old Testament. So you're welcome. I'm not making you read three chapters. Um, but I want us to read the entire chapter so we will get the context. Um, and even though I'm reading this entire thing, I'm actually going to focus on specific verses and kind of highlight them as we go through. So that being said, let's go ahead and read God's word. Romans 5. Therefore, since we have been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Through him, we also have obtained access by faith into this grace in which we stand. And we rejoice in hope of the glory of God. Not only that, but we rejoice in our sufferings, knowing that suffering produces endurance, and endurance produces character, and character produces hope. And hope does not put us to shame, because God's love has been poured out, has been poured into our hearts through the Holy Spirit who has been given to us. For while we were still weak, at the right time, Christ died for the ungodly. For one will scarcely die for the righteous person, though perhaps for a good person one would dare to die. But God shows his love for us, and that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Since, therefore, we have been now justified by his blood, much more shall we be saved by him from the wrath of God. For if while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God by the death of his Son, much more, now that we are reconciled, shall we be saved by his life. More than that, we also rejoice in God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we have now received reconciliation. Therefore, just as sin came into the world through one man, and death through sin, 
so death spread to all men because all sinned. For sin indeed was in the world before the law was given, but sin is not counted where there is no law. Yet death reigned from Adam to Moses, even over those whose sinning was not like the transgression of Adam, who was a type of the one who was to come. But the free gift is not like the trespass. For if many died through one man's trespass, much more have the grace of God and the free gift by the grace of that one man, Jesus Christ, abounded for many. And if the free gift is not like the result of the one man's sin, for the judgment following one trespass brought condemnation, but the free gift following many trespasses brought justification. For it is because of one man's trespass, death reigned through that one man. And much more will those who receive the abundance of grace and the free gift of righteousness reign in life through the one man, Jesus Christ. Therefore, as one trespass led to condemnation for all men, so one act of righteousness leads to justification and life for all men. For as by one man's disobedience the many were made sinners, so by one man's obedience the many were made righteous. Now the law came in to increase the trespass, but where sin increased, grace abound all the more. So that as sin reigned in death, grace also might reign through the righteousness leading to eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. Let's go ahead and pray. Dear Heavenly Father, I thank you for this opportunity to get back in front of my church family um, and to preach from your word. I ask that uh, through this that I would not be worried about how I say things. Um, we know that I may not be gifted with speech, but we know that you speak to your people through your word. I ask that you would come and work sovereignly to, to make our hearts malleable for us to understand this. Um, let your people be edified. Let them know that I love them and let them know that they love me and let me know that. We thank you for your son coming to die in our place for sinners. And in Christ's name, amen. All right. So, uh, my goal as we work through this passage is for us to see the argument that Paul is making. And the, the structure that I saw uh, Paul put in this chapter seems to go something around the lines of this. In verses 1 through 5, Paul tells us the result of the work of Christ. In verses 6 through 11, Paul tells us the when of the work of Christ. And in verses 12 through 21, Paul explains the how. He gives us the theological breakdown of the work of Christ. So if you look back to verses 1 and 2, right off the bat we see that Paul tells us that we have been justified by faith. And this is the exact point that Stephen actually preached to us about last week. But we have to, to clarify, what does it mean to be justified or what does justification mean? Justification is to be declared righteous in God's sight. And this declaration is a continuous, once and for all, legal declaration made by him. So faith is the means by which we attain this righteousness. But in the exact same sentence, Paul actually goes on to tell us that we have peace with God through Jesus Christ. To be at peace with God is to be reconciled to God. And reconciliation is to no longer have enmity between you and God. This, re this reconciliation means that God no longer has wrath for us, though we deserve it. And we deserve his wrath, we deserve his condemnation, we deserve um, hellfire for our rebellion against him. But we no longer have wrath for us because we have been reconciled to God through our faith in Christ. So what Paul is actually telling us is that through faith in Christ we are now counted as righteous, and by God, we have peace with him. And not only that, 
we have peace with God, but God now has peace with us. Those who, who stood condemned before now stand forgiven. And the grace um, in which we stand that Paul uses in the next verse is actually this reconciliation that we're talking about through faith in Christ. Because of this reconciliation, Paul explains that we have rejoicing and joy that is met with hope because we can know that this declaration of righteousness and peace with God cannot be stripped away from us. So all of this uh, that we just read, this is the work of Christ. This is what we get from Christ coming to die in our place on behalf of sinners. But I want you to jump down to verse 6 with me. Paul goes on, and this is where he tells us the when that Christ did his work um, to save sinners. This is the when. He says, For while we were still weak at the right time, Christ died for the ungodly. And Paul explains that while we are still sinners, Christ died for us. We were the ungodly. But what does it mean necessarily to be the ungodly? And I want you to take a second and look at the people around this room. Look at your church family. We know each other well enough. We know our pasts. If you know me, look at who's on the stage right now. Think about who we used to be. Things that come to mind. This, this room is filled with former atheists, agnostics, Zen Buddhists, Muslims, homosexuals, drunks, liars, cheaters, thieves, blasphemers. The list can go on and on and on. This is who we used to be. And while we were in the throes of our disobedience, still loving our sin, Christ came and he died in our place. And for this, we, um, and for this, we are now counted as righteous. Christ who is just comes and dies for the unjust. And I have to ask this question that as we think about this, what kind of love is this? That the one sinned against goes and dies for the sinner. This is a love that we can barely comprehend. We talk about it all the time, but I don't think we can fully attain it. And this is a love that we cannot give. This is a love that can only come from the God who is love in his very nature. Paul goes on. He says, For one will scarcely die for a righteous person. And though perhaps for a good person, one would dare even to die. But God shows his love for us, and that while we are still sinners, Christ died for us. And as I was looking through this, um, this is Paul's argument, essentially. Paul is showing us that we are reluctant to lay down our lives for even a really good person, let alone a horrible or an immoral person that we know of. So, so here's a question for us as we read this. Would you voluntarily lay down your life and die for a murderer sitting on death row? Would you lay down your, die, your life and die for a rapist or a thief? And even in this, we're talking about people that have wronged other people, but let's make it more personal. Think about people that have wronged you. Would you die for the guy that hates your guts, a man that spends his entire life fighting you or seeking your harm, someone who knocks on your door only for you to open it and have him spit in your face every time you do? Would you die for that person? Because Christ did. Because that was us. We're, we were living a life filled with hate and rebellion against God, and yet Christ died for us. But Paul goes on, and he explains, and he reasons with us in verse 9 that we have been justified. We've been made right with God by Christ's blood, saving us from the wrath of God. 
So in Christ dying and shedding his blood for sinners, he has satisfied the wrath of God on our behalf, and he has reconciled us to God. We have been saved from the wrath of God because Jesus Christ has taken our sin upon himself and has rendered payment for it on our behalf. And because of that shedding of his blood in our place, God has no more wrath for us or against our sin. Christ suffers on the cross. God's wrath is poured onto him. And we now have peace and reconciliation. And in theology, we call this the passive obedience of Christ. The passive obedience of Christ. We call this the passive obedience of Christ because the word passive comes from the word passion, which means to suffer. And then here in verse 10, Paul starts to set up his final argument in this chapter. While we were enemies of God, we were reconciled to him through Christ. But I want you to pay attention to the back verse, uh, at the back end of the verse 10. He says, much more shall you be saved by his life. So we see that we are reconciled through Christ's death, paying our debt of sin. And then Paul goes on and he says that we are saved by Christ's life. You see how these are different. But how does this work? How are we saved by both the death and life of Christ? And this is a piece of theology that I think is often neglected in in many churches. But we're not going to neglect it tonight. So we're going to try and do better. Starting in verse 10, this is where Paul gives us the how portion of the work of Christ. Paul gives us a theological breakdown on how exactly this works. He says, Therefore, just as sin came into the world through one man... And death through sin, so death spread to all men because all sinned. And when he's saying this, Paul is calling back to Adam in the garden. God made a covenant with Adam in the Garden of Eden. And in this covenant, he told Adam, Obey me and you shall live. Disobey me and you shall die. And this covenant wasn't just made with Adam, but with all of mankind. So you might be wondering, how did God make a covenant with all of mankind if only Adam was present when God made the covenant with him. And then this is where we get another concept called federal headship. This is where this comes into play. Federal comes from the Latin word meaning covenant. And this means that Adam was the covenant representative for all of mankind. And to help illustrate this point, um, I have a few examples for you to think about. Uh, Before a football game starts, you have the team captain that goes out to the center of the field and he represents the team at the coin toss. Um, or, or another thing, think about the United Nations. Our country has a representative at the UN, and whatever they do, they do on behalf of the United States. They represent the country. So in the same way, we see that this is a concept all throughout the scriptures, especially in the Old Testament. Think about Abraham. Think about Moses, David, and Noah. In these covenants made with them, they represented not only themselves, but all who would come after them. And Adam broke that covenant. He ate of the fruit that he was commanded not to. And his disobedience brought sin into the world and to all of mankind. When Adam fell, the whole race fell with him. When Adam sinned, we all sinned. And when Adam sinned, we all became sinners through him. When he brought the wrath of God upon himself, he brought the wrath of God upon us. And as we are all born into Adam, this is why we call Adam our first father. We are born into his headship. And this is why in in 1 Corinthians, Paul actually says, in Adam, all die. But 
In Romans 5, Paul continues. He says, Yet death reigned from Adam to Moses, even over those whose sinning was not like the transgression of Adam, who was a type of the one who was to come. The first Adam was a type of the one to come. But what does type mean in this sentence? A type is a foreshadowing of something um, as a foreshadowing of something better to come. And Adam, being our covenant representative, was a foreshadowing of the better covenant representative that is still to come, who was the second Adam, the true and better Adam, Jesus Christ. And Paul goes on. He says, But the free gift is not like the trespass. For if many died through one man's trespass, much more have the grace of God and the free gift um, the free gift by the grace of that one man, Jesus Christ, abounded for many. And therefore, as one man's trespass led to the condemnation for all men, so one act of righteousness leads to the justification and life for all men. For as by one man's disobedience, the many were made sinners, and so by one man's obedience, the many will be made righteous. Adam brought death on all who would come after him in his disobedience. This one man's sin that led to the condemnation, all, the condemnation of all is Adam. And it was man's disobedience, it was this man's disobedience that made us all sinners. So Paul's point is that whoever is under the headship of Adam is under the condemnation of God for sin. And then Paul goes on and he actually contrasts Adam with Christ. He explains that in the same way that Adam brought death to all men, Christ brings life to all men for those who place their faith in him. That as one act of disobedience in Adam made us all sinners, one act of righteousness leads to the justification of all who will believe. And in the obedience of Christ, um, it is the obedience of Christ that will make all who believe righteous. It is Christ's obedience. But what do we mean when we say the obedience of Christ? We can get lost in theological terms. We mean that Jesus did what the first Adam couldn't do, living a life of perfect obedience and righteousness. He perfectly obeyed the law of God. When Adam failed, Christ succeeded in the covenant of works. He never sinned. And in theology, we call this the active obedience of Christ. We talked about the passive before, and now we're talking about the active obedience of Christ. And through faith in Christ, he becomes our new covenant representative to God instead of Adam. So just as Adam's sin was imputed to us or, or accredited to us because of his disobedience, Christ's righteousness is now imputed to all who place their faith in him. Making us righteous in the eyes of the Father because Christ is now our representative and not Adam. So now God, by grace, will give a free gift to sinners, which is justification and righteousness through their new covenant representative, Jesus Christ. But how do we get this gift? How do we get this new representative? Look back to verse 1. It tells us. Paul says, Since we have been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus. So through faith in Christ, we have peace with God because he, Christ, has shed his blood for the ungodly, paying for our sin, and has also became the new representative to God for those who trust in him. And again, like we said earlier, like Paul says, in Adam all die, 
so also in Christ shall all be made alive. So let me ask you something. As for everything we just talked about, can any of you show me where anything you do fits into this story and scheme of salvation? Because I would say no. You are in no way, shape, or form actively doing anything for your salvation. Because it is not your paying for sin that satisfies the wrath of God. It is Christ's. It is not your obedience that satisfies uh, God's covenant of works. It is Christ's. And all we are are recipients of the free gift of grace that comes through faith in Jesus Christ our Lord, which is received by faith alone in the person and work of Christ alone. So when we look at the, the solas, this is why we say that we are saved by grace alone, through faith alone, and Christ alone. Because it's not about us and what we've done. It's about the atoning death and righteous life of Jesus Christ that brings justification and peace with God to the ungodly. This is what Luther actually said um, in, in Latin. It's, he said that our righteousness is extra nos. It means outside of us or apart from us. And he goes on and he says that we have an alien righteousness. And we, and we do because our righteousness is the righteousness of Christ. It does not come from us. As we understand this, this understanding of justification destro destroys any other formula that exists. And this understanding of justification is the only one that will bring us life. As we look at the reformers, this was a hill to die on for them. And this should be a hill to die on for us. The whole doctrine of justification by faith, the whole doctrine of salvation by grace, rests on the understanding that the law of God has been fulfilled by Christ and by Christ alone. And if we lose this justification by grace alone, through faith alone, and Christ alone, we end up just completely losing the gospel. So as we start to kind of wrap this thing up, I always have short sermons, so you're welcome. But as we wrap this thing up, we have to think about what did we talk about tonight? We started off by talking about the Protestant Reformation with Martin Luther and how the five solos came out of the Reformation. We talked about the faulty formula for justification that the Roman Catholic Church gives. And we contrasted the Roman Catholic Church with the teachings of the Apostle Paul found in Romans 5. And in Paul's epistle, of the Roman, uh, when in Paul's epistle to the Romans, we read the results of the work of Christ, that we have been justified by our faith, and that this brings us peace with God through Jesus Christ. We read about the when, when Christ did his work to save sinners. He says, while we were dead in our sin and hostile to him, Christ in his passive obedience voluntarily offered himself up to bear the wrath of God for our sin, bringing us reconciliation. And after that, we read about the how of Christ's work saves sinners. We read that through faith in him, Christ is now our new covenant representative before God. That in Christ's act of obedience, all of his righteousness was imputed to us and while at the same time, all of our sin was imputed to him in his passive obedience, making us both reconciled to God and righteous. And this is what gives us our justification. And as we celebrate the Protestant Reformation, we can see why the doctrine of solus Christus exists. We must believe that it was all done by the work of Christ and by Christ alone. 
So as we move into um, application, we can take away many points from this, from this chapter. Um, but as I was thinking about this, as I'm at work and, and studying through this, there was only one point that kept harping on me. Um, <laughs> I was actually in, in, in borderline tears as I'm trying to make trucks on a, at Kenworth um, as I was thinking about this. The thought that kept coming to me was that for those in Christ, we don't have to worry about our status with God. We are justified in his sight by faith in the person and work of Christ alone. Justification being a once and for all legal declaration about our status with God is not subject to change. God is immutable, which is a fancy word for unchanging. And once God declares you just, and once he declares you righteous, he does not change his mind. In Numbers 23, 19, God says about himself, God is not man that he would lie, or a son of man that he should change his mind. Has he said, has he said and he will not do it? Or has he spoken, and will he not fulfill it? In Malachi 3, 6, he says, For I, the Lord, do not change. And for anyone in this room who believes by faith in Christ and is struggling with their status, of God, uh, their status between them and God, this might be some of the sweetest news you hear out of this entire thing. Because I've been at a point where, where you're wrestling with whether you are a child of God or not. I know what it's like to live every single day in terror when the accuser puts all of your sin in the forefront of your mind and it weighs you down and it feels just like a boulder of anguish is on your back. I know what it feels like to have constant anxiety, never knowing if you're saved because you fell into that sin again. Never knowing if you're still loved by God. And to anyone in this room that believes in Christ and practices faith and repentance, I want to tell you something out of this. You are saved. God wants you to know that he loves you. And we can look back through this and we see this and we can know that we are saved. For parents in the room, do you ever um, worry that your children question uh, whether or not your love for them is genuine? Do you want your child to suffer with anxiety not knowing whether or not you actually love them? I would say absolutely not. In the same way, God in no part wants you to be actively struggling with anxiety not knowing if you are loved by him. He wants you to know. So listen to me, Christians in the room. You have been justified by grace through faith in Christ, and your justification is not subject to change. God will work in his children to make them persevere until the end because he does not change his mind. And to think that we can lose our justification before God is to say that the unchanging, immutable God has changed his mind. Or it's to say that Christ's righteousness is not sufficient for our justification and something else must be added to it. I want you to rest in that. For anyone in this room that has not placed their faith in Christ and has repented of their sins, I beg of you to do so. There is reconciliation, peace, and justification for all who place their faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. Let's pray. Dear Father, I thank you for this opportunity to come up and preach through your word. I ask, ask that what we've talked about tonight would be effective 
on our hearts, that you would work on our hearts for us to understand these truths, and that we would not just let it go through one ear and out the other, but that we would chew on this and ponder on this. We need you to come and do a sovereign work because there's no power in any of the words that I've just said. We thank you for the death of your son in the place of us. We thank you for him acting in our place, maintaining and giving us our righteousness so that before you, we are seen as righteous. We thank you. And in Jesus' name, amen.